I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And in John Rawls' 1971 book, Theory of Justice, he offers a thought experiment known as the veil of ignorance. Behind this veil, no one knows who they are. They don't know their race, class, age, sex, privileges, disadvantages, even their own personality. Only once they step through the veil will all of these elements be revealed. Only then will they know their place in society. But before they take that step, they are tasked with designing that society, its laws and its structures, its benefits and punishments. Imagine yourself behind that veil. How would you make the world if you weren't sure of your own place in it? Our guest this week has a deep understanding of what certain corners of our society look like when that veil goes unconsidered. Samuel Weiss is the founder and executive director of Rights Behind Bars, where he litigates claims on behalf of people abused in prison. Before starting Rights Behind Bars, Sam litigated prison condition cases and other civil rights cases across the country at the ACLU's National Prison Project and the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. He has published writing on the criminal justice system and other issues of civil and constitutional rights in academic and popular settings. Sam, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Now, I'd like to start with an Oscar Wilde quote that you use on your website for Rights Behind Bars. It goes, quote, I know not whether laws be right or whether laws be wrong. All we know who lie in jail is that the wall is strong and that each day is like a year, a year whose days are long, end quote. And I think something that the average person can really struggle with is holding two seemingly conflicting ideas in their mind at the same time. The same dissonance that can drive otherwise empathetic people to embrace overly punitive measures like prosecutorial charge stacking or three strikes laws. And I think that that dissonance is this. The people in prison may have done heinous things, and yet the people in prison deserve fair and humane treatment while incarcerated. Because I think if you went up to the average person and asked them, should someone in prison be provided safe, clean, humane living conditions while serving out their sentence, I think most people would say yes. But if you were to follow that up with, by the way, that person raped four women, I imagine a not insignificant amount of people would begin reconsidering their answer. I know you've seen this up close and personal in the work that you do, both the inhumane living conditions of many prisons and the people who have committed sometimes unthinkable crimes. So how have you dealt with this in your own mind, your own experience, and what are some ways that the average person who doesn't do this work can go about resolving their conflicting emotions around this topic if they have them? I think that's a great question. I think first, and I completely understand the impulse to do so, but what so often happens in criminal justice policy is that decisions get made for everybody based on the worst imagined person. So laws about criminal penalties or prison conditions are made with with the most kind of heinous actions in mind and not the median person in mind. And, and I understand why that happens, that they're evocative stories. But to people who have that reaction, I would say that it is in everybody's best interest for people to be treated humanely while they're in prison. So virtually everybody who is in prison will someday come home. And even people who will never come home because they have life sentences that they will serve out or they'll otherwise die in prison before they're released, there are still 
prison guards and medical staff and other staff members who are going in and interacting with them every day. And we just have this wealth of evidence that people who are treated humanely, that it makes a society better for everybody. If people who committed very serious mistakes have the opportunity to do something with their lives and be productive citizens when they come out, and also that while they're incarcerated, for, for example, there are studies based on prison guards, and the harsher the prison environment, the more psychological damage they have, the more likely they are to develop things like substance abuse orders, to have issues like committing acts of domestic violence. And so these hyper-harsh prisons, however much in an individual case, and I think you're absolutely right that in the abstract, we have certain principles, and then individual cases can be so evocative that you want to throw those principles out the windows and go right to vengeance. But setting aside vengeance and thinking of the greater societal good actually does make everybody better off. That's a really great point about how the conditions inside of the prison not only affect the people being imprisoned, but also the people who are working in the prisons, the prison guards, for instance, and the other staff, that those inhumane conditions can have real lasting psychological effects on the people who are working there, not just the people who have been sentenced there because of crimes they've committed. Do I have that right? Yeah, that's right. So I'd like to talk about the difference between prisons and jails before we really sort of get into the meat of the abuses and the mistreatment that is happening in our prison system. So for the average person, how would you distinguish a prison from a jail? And how are the conditions in each of those different and similar? Sure. So a jail is where people are held pre-trial. So while they are still presumed innocent, but Either they have not been granted bail because they are considered a risk to their community or they are unable to make a cash payment. Most people actually in jails are there because they are impoverished and cannot make a cash payment. Or also people sometimes after they're convicted serve short sentences. The, the typical number there is up to a year. People can serve up to a year in a jail, whereas a prison is for longer term sentences for people after they are actually convicted or plead guilty of a crime. And so, as you can imagine, these two entities have very different cultures and very different problems often. So, as you can imagine, jails have a ton of churn. And so, they are generally more chaotic places. You know, people are in for very brief periods of time often. You know, intoxicated people are coming in on drunk driving charges and being shortly released. People who don't have homes are being rounded up by the police very shortly after released. So, people are constantly coming and going. And so, Jails are a little more chaotic. The biggest jails tend to be in big cities, and they tend to have much less programming because people are there for very short stints. So the things that you would think of as rehabilitative type practices, you know, like drug treatment or something like that, because people are spending such short periods of times in jails, mostly that's totally absent. Whereas prisons, People can spend, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years in a prison. It tends to be a collection of people who have committed more serious crimes. They tend to be in rural areas. A lot of prisons are built in small towns that used to have a factory or that used to have a mine and need some sort of economic engine to continue to exist for the workforce that's there. As you can imagine, they tend to have different problems based on the very different populations that they serve. So jails, people constantly coming and going, they have to deal with things like on intake, 
someone who may be addicted to opiates or maybe even addicted to benzodiazepines, which are entirely legal, but you're going to have some serious medical problems if you're withdrawing. Obviously, people can die from withdrawal of alcohol also. Those are issues that need to be considered. Also, a lot of people upon first entering jail have mental health crises. In the famous story of Sandra Bland, she was jailed for a very minor traffic offense and committed suicide shortly thereafter. Jails are are constantly dealing with this churn in a more chaotic environment. Prisons deal with issues of people who have committed more serious crimes and as a result are more troubled often, you know, have very serious mental health problems, often have serious physical disabilities. Because sentences have gotten so long in the United States, we have a graying of the prison population where our prison population is getting older and older. So we have a lot of people with physical disabilities who need to be accommodated and who often aren't. There's also in prisons, because of their rural setting, there's a cultural clash often where, you know, in states like New York and Illinois, a lot of people in prisons are coming from big cities. A lot of them are people of color, whereas a lot of the people who are working at the prisons just may not have a lot in common with those people culturally, whereas that's less the case in jails because the workforce is coming from the same metropolitan area. So in the instance of a jail, if I understand this correctly, I just want to make sure I got this. There are people in jail who are serving sentences, but just sentences that are shorter, like a year or less. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And a funny thing about the difference between jails and prisons, which I I think is one of the major causes of mass incarceration and and often under-discussed one, is that jails are run by municipalities and court systems are run by municipalities, but prisons are run by states and they bear their respective costs. So for example, if you are charged with a crime, say in Cook County, Illinois, you have a county prosecutor. And if they put you in a county drug treatment program, or they sentence you to 30 days at the county jail, or they put you on five years of probation, all of those costs are borne by the county. And you're a prosecutor who ultimately works for someone elected countywide who's a political actor in the municipality. Whereas if you send somebody to prison for two years, none of that cost is borne by the county, even though it's entirely a product of a countywide system, you know, a county judge, a county prosecutor, a county public defender. And so what you have is economists call this the correctional free lunch, where prosecutors have every incentive to actually spend more money because it's not their money. So it costs more a drug treatment plan, even though it's many, many times cheaper than a two-year prison sentence, but it's not to the political entity that the prosecutor is responding to. Wow. Okay. I don't want to get too far off track from discussing prison conditions, but what you just said kind of has my mind running wild here. Okay. So if a prison sentence is over a certain length, I guess you said around two years, then it goes from county to state? Typically one year. One year. Okay. So if it's over a year, then I guess it goes from jails to prison, county to state. Perhaps this is a silly question to ask, but does that ever incentivize harsher prison sentences in order to offload the cost of the imprisonment itself from the county to the state? Because if the state is handling all the costs associated with prison sentences longer than a year, and the county is on the hook, so to speak, for any prison sentences less than a year, if the county was running into some kind of budget deficit or economic constraint, How do we prevent, I guess, through the legal system, 
from that incentivizing bad behavior on the behalf of either prosecutors or judges? Is that a question that I'm asking out of turn or is there some sense behind it? I think there's a ton of sense behind it. And I think this isn't to accuse any individual prosecutor of having that sort of financial incentive in mind, but obviously it's a really powerful financial incentive that structures how the institutions of how a prosecutor's office would work and how a county judge would work. I mean, these are elected political offices. So yes, I think it absolutely incentivizes longer sentences. Ways around it. So California, as a result of a court order for them to reduce their prison population, they engaged in a process that shifted a lot of people that were serving shorter sentences, like two years instead of one year, to county jails. And that required the county jails to bear more of their own costs. So that can do some of the work for you. However, there are downsides to that as well. So I described jails as being more chaotic and having a lot less programming. It doesn't really make sense to have people in chaotic, high turnover environments with no programming for 18 months or 24 months with the hope that they'll come out better equipped to function in society. So California felt like it basically had a gun to its head with this Supreme Court order where the overcrowding had gotten so horrific that they had to reduce their prison population and they weren't capable of doing so fast enough. So that pushed them to push some of that weight onto the counties. And that incidentally has the cost of basically internalizing at least part of the externality, but still not all the way. Yeah, that idea of people who have been convicted serving their sentences alongside people who haven't even been convicted or sentenced of anything inside county jails is kind of mind-blowing. And according to prisonpolicy.org, over 550,000 people are locked up in jail who haven't been convicted or sentenced, most of them because they can't afford to pay the bail amount needed for release. And bail, I don't know if a lot of people know this, I know you do, is often not an insignificant amount. The median bail for felonies, for instance, is $10,000, which is about eight months of income for the typical person being detained. So before we move on to the abuses and mistreatment that happens in the system, regardless of whether it's a jail or a prison, how much of rights behind bars work involves prisons versus jails? How does that kind of break out? And have you found that more abuses take place in one instance rather than the other? Have you found that prisons tend to be more punitive than jails, or is it about the same? And just to add one additional note quickly before I answer your question about a lot of county jails have people serving sentences and people who simply cannot afford to make a cash payment. Many county jails often have a third category of person, which are immigration detainees, who, because we do not have enough beds in our privatized immigration detention system, many county jails take in immigration detainees. Now, that's nominally civil. It's not a crime to be in the country without documentation. So this is nominally civil detention. It's not in the criminal justice system in theory. And yet, Sometimes you go into a jail and there's one block of cells for the people who have not been convicted of anything yet, one block of cells for people who are serving their sentences, and another block of cells for people who are immigrants who are being detained in a nominal civil detention fashion. But the only way you can tell the difference between the three groups of people is the color of their jumpsuits. So these are some legal fictions going on here, uh, drawing these distinctions. As to whether one is more harsh than the other, I think... One thing that's generally true about prisons and jails that's 
unsatisfying but true when talking about prisons and jails is that they vary so much between them. And there's also, there's so little transparency into their conditions. And then also our prison and jail systems are so decentralized. So we do have a federal prison system, which is the biggest prison system in the United States, but it is much, much smaller than the 50 state prison systems combined. And then jails were going municipality by municipality. And they just vary enormously in their condition. So speaking about prisons versus jails is just really hard to do as a general matter. Again, one way in most circumstances you'd have insight into this is, you know, aggregated statistics from all of these. However, the data collection about prisons and jails are also dreadful. And in general, these are institutions that are designed to be as untransparent as possible. You know, on other matters of public concern, like public housing or public education, journalists can just walk into them and talk to people. Uh, family members can just walk into them and talk to people. Prisons and jails have barbed wire outside. Journalists are not allowed inside. So it's lawyers are sometimes allowed inside. And a lot of the information that comes from journalists is often a product of lawsuits because often that's the only way to get that information. So, that, so that's just to say the very information you'd need to answer your question, the lack of it is a problem in and of itself. What I would say is that it's not necessarily that jails and prisons differ in which have more problems, but just that they have different types of problems. And so jails can be very violent. They can struggle with issues like people coming in, overdosing on substances who are addicted to substances, dealing with that, people coming in being suicidal. So they have the challenges of dealing with that intake of people and often struggle to do so. And then prisons struggle in different ways. So they often struggle to accommodate people with disabilities because their population and them are much older. Some of them also, too, can be very violent, especially prisons that have basically abandoned programming, leave the running of the prisons to prison gangs because people don't have anything to do and they don't have anything to lose. and. People everywhere want to feel a sense of belonging and want to feel a sense of purpose and like they're building towards something. And if you give people literally no other outlet, that's a primary way that it comes out. So there are prisons that can be very violent. And then also one issue that is more of a prison problem just because the length of time that has been in the news a lot more recently is the use of long-term solitary confinement, which is really a prison problem more than a jail problem because of the sheer length of time that people are spending in there. Yeah, the theme seems to be, and I saw this same thing when I was doing my research in preparation for this talk, the theme seems to be chaos and disorder repeatedly over and over again. Just a general lack of structure imposed by the state or federal government that gives prisoners a sense of purpose, that gives them a sense of safety, that gives them a sense of feeling like they're being taken care of while they're serving their sentence. That seems to be a theme that just kind of cuts through all of the case law that I've glanced over as I've been preparing for this interview. And so that kind of takes us into the realm of the abuses that you help these imprisoned people litigate as they try and stand up for their rights within the system. So I want to go through some of the ways the incarcerated are mistreated or abused in American prisons, and I'd love to kind of pair these facts with your own experiences advocating on behalf of those abused. So let's start with qualified immunity. It seems that a lot of what goes on, the mistreatment, the abuse, the inhumane conditions, 
happens because of a concept that many Americans, I think, have become familiar with, at least over the last year, which is qualified immunity. But to truly understand it, we have to go back to the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871. This was the third in a series known as Enforcement Acts, which were designed to eliminate extra-legal violence and protect the civil and political rights of recently freed slaves. In this act was a provision that allowed plaintiffs to sue state defendants for violating their constitutional rights, which sounds like a pretty good thing. But something changed in 1967 that has had a cascading effect on how many Americans interact with public servants, which include, of course, police and prison guards. So, Just from your experience and what you know of the law, what happened in 1967 and how has it affected how individuals can seek justice for mistreatment at the hands of the state? What the Supreme Court did is they read into that statute protection for government officials who a court has found to violate the law, violate the Constitution even, but that it was not clearly established before the ruling itself that they had done so, that they would be protected from money damages. So they wouldn't be protected from an injunction ordering them to stop doing what they're doing, but it would stop them from paying money to the plaintiff whose constitutional rights were violated. And this is intuitive in some respects. I mean, what it was nominally doing, or at least what the Supreme Court thought that it was doing, was taking the common law immunities that existed when the Ku Klux Klan Act was passed and saying that Congress, when they passed the statute, must have assumed that those common law immunities were going to continue. So even though it's not in the text, that was in their head when they passed the law. So it's so it's in the law, even if you can't see it. Recently, there's been a lot of historical research that makes clear that that's almost certainly wrong. But that was what they thought at the time. And what's become problematic is over time, the qualified immunity has become more and more powerful. So again, some idea that a defendant is on notice that what they're doing is wrong before they do it, and then have to pay money damages that could be bankrupting to the person. Again, that is sort of intuitive as a fair thing to do, Right. It seems to me, just just so I can kind of clarify both for myself and the listener, it seems to me like what the intuition behind the 1967 ruling was, you don't want to like mind read into the person who's on the receiving end of one of these cases that they knew what they were doing was wrong, even as they were doing it. Because I'm sure there are times in which someone was just ignorant of the law, even if they were the one in charge of enforcing it. And you don't want to automatically assume malignant intent if it's not there. But it seems to me, if I'm just kind of yes-anding you here, it seems to me like that loophole has been abused to such an extent where it seems like there are many clear cases, and we're going to get to one of those in just a second, in which it seems very clear that the people who were mistreating prisoners or mistreating people on who were at the other end of state violence, that they knew what they were doing, and they're using qualified immunity as a loophole to get out of the justice that should be brought. Is that right? That's absolutely right. Two things I would say have changed in the past few decades. One is that virtually all municipal and state officers are now indemnified by the municipalities or states that they work for, all of which is to say that it wouldn't actually be the individual paying the money. When a police officer gets sued, when a prison guard gets sued, it's the prison system or it's the police department that pays that money. Even when qualified immunity is overcome, which is very rare these days, 
the money is not bankrupting the individual. The money is coming out of the political entity. And actually, that's the exact incentive that you would want. You know, it's not necessarily that you'd want you know, if you want one or $2 million judgments, first of all, most prison guards and police officers are going to be unable to pay that. But second of all, even if they could, you don't really want to pick off a few bad apples and destroy their lives. You want to create an incentive system for the political entity to have these really awful things happen as rarely as possible. And indemnification has done that, but it's put the lie to this idea that it's the individual who needs protection. So that's one thing that's happened. And then another thing that's happened is that the Supreme Court has read qualified immunity more and more strictly and repeatedly admonished lower courts for not reading qualified immunity as strictly as possible. So it turned from what really was a notice question, like, did this person reasonably think what they were doing was illegal? into more of a logic puzzle, which was, was there a binding case exactly on point? And the truth is, the answer is almost always going to be no. And in part, because sometimes public officials find novel ways to do really bad things. And if there hasn't happened to be a lawsuit in that circuit or in the Supreme Court that is held that that's illegal, then those people get away without paying money damages. And again, there's two things you can get out of a lawsuit, money damages or an injunction. But in virtually all the sorts of cases that we're talking about, there's no realistic way to get any sort of injunction that helps the person. So in the archetypical case, which is a police shooting, you can't get an injunction against a police officer to please don't shoot me again. It's money damages or nothing. And this is true of most abuses in prison as well. There's no possible remedy other than damages, and there's no incentive to hold these entities accountable other than damages. And yet the Supreme Court has basically almost entirely turned that off, not by actually changing the substantive law, but by changing the protections that public officials are given. And I want to use an example from a case that your organization recently won at the Supreme Court as an example of how absurd this standard can become. Because I think the average person, and my, honestly, myself included, before I started doing this research, you can hear something like, oh, we need to make sure that there's pre-existing case law that outlines exactly what the abuses you know, should or shouldn't be. And if it can't be pointed to, then that person can plead ignorance. And and I think for some people that might make a certain kind of sense, but I want to use the case that Rights Behind Bars recently helped win in the Supreme Court as an example of how absurd this really starts to become once you look at these actual cases. So I'm going to quote from your own website here. And this is important before I do this quote. I want to preface this by saying that only two other times in the last 30 years has the Supreme Court ruled in favor of a plaintiff in a qualified immunity case. So just for everyone listening, as I'm about to read this case to you. <laughs> There have only been three times you include this case in the last 30 years that the Supreme Court has ruled in favor of a plaintiff in a qualified immunity case. So here is the text of the case from your website, quote, on April 24th, 2020, rights behind bars petitioned the Supreme Court to review the Fifth Circuit's grant of qualified immunity to Texas state prison officials. Oh, man, this is rough. Who forced Trent Taylor to live naked in prison cells covered in human sewage for nearly a week following a suicide attempt. In fear that his food and water might be contaminated by the massive amount of feces covering the cell, 
Taylor did not eat or drink for nearly four days. Correctional officers then moved Taylor to a frigidly cold cell with only a clogged drain in the floor to dispose of bodily wastes. Taylor held his bladder for over 24 hours, but he eventually relieved himself involuntarily, causing the drain to overflow and raw sewage to spill across the floor, where he slept naked without a mattress. Though the Fifth Circuit recognized these conditions to violate the Eighth Amendment's prohibition of cruel and unusual punishment, it granted qualified immunity to prison officials because it deemed that the law was not, quote, clearly established that, quote, prisoners couldn't be housed in cells teeming with human waste for only six days, quote. So what leads, I mean, that's just, an, it's infuriating. What leads to absurd sounding statements like these, Sam? Like what on earth leads to, I'm going to just quote that again. That law was not clearly established, quote, that prisoners couldn't be housed in cells teemed with human waste, end quote. How do we get here? How did we get here? Yeah, so it's, it's this abandonment of the notion of notice and a replacement of it with this kind of logic puzzle of every element of this case needs to have been met in a past case. So what the Fifth Circuit did in this case before we were able to take it up to the Supreme Court and get it reversed was the Fifth Circuit said, well, we have this one case where a guy had to live in a really dirty cell for three days, and we held that that doesn't violate the Constitution. And then we have this other case where a guy lived in a really dirty cell for two years, and we held that that did violate the Constitution. And, you know, six days, it's more than three days, it's less than two years. So that's in the gray zone. Can I just, just, sorry, just, just to butt in here. Please. Yeah, please. In Furman versus Georgia in 1972, Justice Brennan at the Supreme Court wrote that, quote, there are four principles by which we may determine whether a particular punishment is cruel and unusual. One, the essential predicate is that a punishment must not by its severity be degrading to human dignity. A severe punishment that is obviously inflicted in wholly arbitrary fashion a severe punishment that is clearly and totally rejected throughout society, and a severe punishment that is patently unnecessary. And he added, quote, the function of these principles, after all, is simply to provide the means by which a court can determine whether the challenged punishment comports with human dignity, end quote. So, (sighs) trying to keep my composure here, why are these arguments that are happening in the Fifth Circuit or the Supreme Court or all these other courts, why are they talking about these things? Why are they litigating whether or not it's three days in a feces-covered cell or six days or two years, whether that's cruel or unusual? Why isn't the standard you spend a day, you spend an hour in a room covered in feces, that's cruel and unusual? Why? How do, how do, I don't mean to lose my temper, but like, why, why are we having these discussions at all? Well, I, I think a couple of reasons. I, th- I think one is the sort of dehumanization that can take place where through these very dry legal proceedings, this is all on paper, they never meet Trent Taylor, they don't see the cell where he was living in, they don't see the unit he's living on, which is which is a unit for psychiatric patients. And they don't hear the way that he was jeered and mocked by staff while all this was happening while he was pleading for help. Uh, so that's part of it. And then part of it is qualified immunity, just having gone entirely off the rails where it's not enough to show a constitutional violation. You need to show it's clearly established. And again, if we're focused on this notice principle, you would say, do these guys who did this know that it's wrong? And, and not just wrong 
because it's a prison and things happen, but really, really wrong? And the answer is, of course. How could somebody possibly not understand that this is a degrading act? But when you turn it into a logic puzzle where it has to be clearly established in every aspect, one relevant variable is time. And if they don't have a case where you could say there's a filthy cell in three days versus a filthy cell in 12 days, but this wasn't just a filthy cell. This is you know totally beyond the pale. But because it's a relevant variable and because that fell in the gray area in this logic puzzle methodology, that was enough. And again, it's obviously we litigated the case. We're, we're the last ones to rationalize the other outcome. But it's what happens when courts stop looking at it as what could a reasonable person have thought here and just start turning it into this. Can I find some way to distinguish this, to give this guy protection? Yeah, because I imagine that when the average person who is not familiar with these just completely detached, robotic, unfeeling, unempathetic rulings... I think that when the average person is imagining like, okay, well, you know, I want to make sure that the prison guard or whoever might have potentially abused the prisoner, I think everyone wants to leave enough room for, okay, maybe the people in the prison got a little riled up and then there, a fight broke out and a prison guard, you know, accidentally punched someone in the face while trying to detain them. I imagine that's probably what the average person is imagining in their minds when they think of like a qualified immunity case. I don't think that the average person is thinking of a situation like this. And so <laughs> if I if I don't control myself, we could spend the rest of the, this time talking about this one case because it infuriates me that much. But I think it just speaks to this very cold and detached way that real human lives, you know, regardless of what this person may or may not have done, what Taylor may or may not have done that got him to prison. I would hope that all of us as a society should understand that the punishment that a person is sentenced to is the time in prison. And I think what frustrates me about this is that I can't imagine how many jurors, if they had to sentence someone, if they were read by a lawyer before the sentencing, oh, hey, when you recommend a sentence to jail for this person or to prison for this person, I just want to let you know what this person will experience once they're in prison. So before you sentence them, I just want you to know that they're going to be put into a, a room covered in feces, that their mental illness will go uncared for, their physical disabilities will go unchecked. I mean, I mean, sorry, I don't mean to get a little bit off the rails here, but like, I think that we've lost a focus on the fact that the punishment is the jail time, that that in and of itself is what jurors and what judges should be litigating, not on top of that, you'll have to stand in your own piss for 24 hours and sleep naked on a jail cell floor. It, I, how did we get here, Sam? How did we get here? Yeah, it's an important question. And when I'm speaking with people who feel more skeptical of some of these issues, and I've brought it up before, but even if people want to be entirely selfish and not think of what's going on behind you know, what are essentially these black boxes where we don't get a lot of information, the truth is Trent is coming home this spring. And if he was moving back into my neighborhood, I would like somebody who's made mistakes in his life, but who also has dealt with an enormous amount of childhood trauma and who has dealt with psychological problems, has had a ton of obstacles in his life. I would like that person, if that person's moving back in my neighborhood, to have gotten some help 
for those problems and be ready to contribute to a society, contribute to a community. And obviously, the sort of degrading and humiliation and the lack of treatment that he received is obviously the exact opposite of that. So the question of how we got here, the answer is in part, I think things have been bad for a long time. It's, It's hard to know exactly comparing across time, because again, just the lack of data. And obviously, a lot of this is, you know, qualitative, like the stories of of what happened to Trent. But two things that come to mind are, one, we had this big incarceration boom that started really in the late 1970s and only ended a few years ago, where the per capita rate of incarceration has just gone up and up and up. And it has slowly started to fall, but very, very gradually at a pace that it would take us about a century to undo what we've done. So that required a prison, or I shouldn't say required because I don't think it did, but it induced a prison building boom. But there's still very serious overcrowding at a lot of facilities as a result of the enormous number of people that we currently put in prison. And then I don't like to overstate the impact that law can have. It's it's the tool that we use, and we think it's a valuable tool, but it's one incentive among many. But in the 1990s, in the heart of this really tough-on-crime era, and, and crime rates had gone up and peaked in the early 1990s, and there was this huge backlash to this that had a lot of consequences. But one was this notion that people in prison were being treated too plushly, basically. And there wasn't really any evidence for this, but it became part of the cultural zeitgeist, and it became part of Newt Gingrich's agenda when he took back the House, uh, when the Republicans took back the House in 1994 with the Contract for America. And that was a time where the Democrats and the Republicans were really competing with each other to try to get to the harsher side of the war on crime. And Congress passed and Bill Clinton signed a statute called the Prison Litigation Reform Act that made it much, much harder to sue prisons. So what we do has been made much harder. And and again, law is one incentive among many. But as a consequence of how we've gotten here, where we have these routine abuses that often don't translate into anybody being held accountable, part of it is this bipartisan statute that was signed in the mid-1990s to protect prisons from lawsuits under the idea that they were being bombarded by frivolous cases that were winning. Now, there's not really any evidence for this, and the scholar Margot Schlanger has demonstrated that if what you were looking for was to eliminate frivolous cases, you would imagine that the number of cases would go down, but the percentage of cases that won would go up because you're filtering out the frivolous ones and leaving out the real ones. Instead, what you've seen is the number of cases overall have gone down and the percentage of cases that win have gone down too, because instead, it just makes cases really, really hard to bring. And so prisons have less and less incentive to the idea that they're going to be held accountable in any meaningful way. So that's why we show up to work every morning. But it's a challenge in part for that reason. I appreciate you elaborating on that. And I think it's instructive. I think that there's a lot of common ground that could be found between obviously the people who want those who've committed crimes or those who are unsafe in their communities who've committed acts of violence. I think we all want those people to be taken off the street for some period of time and hopefully rehabilitated. 
I think we all want to live in safe communities, free from the fear of crime and violence. What is so striking to me is that I just, I don't believe in my heart that there's a lot of general public consensus around conditions like the ones that we're discussing right now. I just, I really don't think so. And if there is, if there is a popular consensus around treating people who are in prison in the ways that Trent Taylor was treated, then I, <laughs> I personally would have to reconsider what our country is founded on. But it seems like a lot of these abuses take place, and I think you worded it really well there, in that sort of black box, where it's sort of out of sight, out of mind. And unless you're working directly with the people who are under these conditions, representing them like you and your organization are, or if you're a journalist who's covering these cases, you're just never going to know because the news doesn't report it. It's kind of that conundrum that led to that tough on crime cycle, right? No one wants to be the person who comes out and says, hey, maybe we should be a little less tough right. on, like, let's say, rapists or murderers or criminals of any sort, because they're going to get skewered, right, in the, in the public press. But it, it just, I think it's so important for us to keep that in the back of our minds, these conditions when we discuss things like prison sentencing, because that is what we're sentencing people to until we reform how our prisons treat the people who are inside of them, and until we reform the conditions and the the health standards, which I, I it kind of takes us to solitary confinement, because there's a few other things I want to I want to touch on with you here, and this kind of directly connects to Taylor's case. This is a bit personal for me because I've I've had to deal with mental illness in my own life, uh, pretty serious depression. So I'm going to quote your site directly. Quote: Many prisons put people with serious mental illness. In solitary confinement, when they behave erratically, even though it is well documented to exacerbate mental illness, these punitive responses create a negative feedback cycle where mentally ill people are put into solitary confinement when they attempt suicide and then are punished for doing so with more solitary confinement, end quote. So there's a lot to unpack here. I think my first question would be, even if I already anticipate the answer, why is solitary confinement used on people who have committed suicide attempts when we know that the mental stress of the confinement causes attempts? It's a good question. And I think it goes to really the convenience of line level staff and their immediate supervisors. So we have fairly good social science evidence now that suggests that solitary confinement, which is nominally a tool used to prevent violence, that ramping up the use of solitary confinement results in more violent prisons, and using less solitary confinement results in less violent prisons, even though that's its very purpose. And the reason is because when people act out, staff don't want to deal with them, and so they put them in solitary confinement, but that causes them to act out more, which is a negative feedback cycle that causes staff to put people in harsher and harsher conditions and to feel that those conditions are warranted because they see this person acting out and they think, we just want this guy you know, wandering out of cell 16 hours a day. But the answer is actually, yes, you do, that this guy is going to cause more trouble in one hour out of cell than in 16 because he's angry and upset and lashing out and mentally decompensating. So the exact same thing is true for mental illness, that a lot of line-level staff, they're not trained to deal with people with serious mental illness. And so they are annoyed by having to do so. You know, prisons are places where 
order is supposed to reign and policies tend to be blanket. There's not a lot of individualization. And people with serious mental illness often struggle to comply with those sorts of things in a way that frustrates staff. And throwing somebody in solitary is just a way to get rid of them. Now, when it comes to suicide attempts, the trouble is that virtually all prison staff think that self-harm is malingering. That because cutting yourself gets you a trip to the doctor's office, that people are doing this just to manipulate the system to get out of solitary. So genuine suicide attempts are normally treated, and again, it's really tough to generalize, but are normally treated by putting people on suicide watch. Although the difference between you know suicide watch is often just a different name for another form of solitary confinement. But a lot of times people are punished because they are accused of slashing themselves or swallowing a chunk of metal just to manipulate the situation. Now, again, stepping back from it, you would say, if your conditions are so abominable that the only way to get out of the solitary confinement unit is to swallow a chunk of metal, and that that's a rational and cunning thing to do, I think that tells you a lot about the conditions that you're holding people in. But the truth is, a lot of self-harm acts, these line-level staff or even, even the doctors are not trained to really know the difference between what are failed suicide attempts and other forms of self-harm and malingering. And so often what we see are people who do commit suicide in solitary confinement, who have had several previous attempts that staff have completely brushed off as malingering. If people aren't familiar with that term, just pretending to be sick to manipulate an advantage. And when I said, you know, I've talked about law being one incentive among many, if this seems inconceivable, in part, all of this is really downstream of a culture of us against them, of the people in prison versus the staff, even the medical staff. You know, the doctors have taken a Hippocratic oath, but nonetheless, there is often such levels of hostility and distrust between staff and people in prison. And when we've talked about why not have harsh prisons, what's the benefit of having you know healthy, safe prisons, this is yet another one that the constant violence, punishment, chaos, it promotes these levels of distrust that result in these awful situations like somebody who's plainly going through a mental health crisis being portrayed as somebody who is just trying to manipulate their situation. This is going to seem like a comparatively frivolous example, but I hope that it's instructive (laughs) to people. I don't know if you've ever experienced this personally, Sam, but I've been in relationships in the past in which, let's say, all be under a lot of stress from external forces outside of their relationship, like a job, right? Maybe my boss is not treating me well. He or she isn't answering my requests, or I'm frustrated with the tasks that I've been given or my hours are too long, or my commute is frustrating, you know, it's an hour each way or something. I feel like my time is being wasted. And let's say the person that I'm with, right, my partner, her job is equally stressful, or maybe she's dealing with things within her family, right? So there's all these external stressors that have nothing to do with our relationship, but they affect how our relationship manifests itself day to day. And so those external stressors affect how we interact. And then those stresses that we bring into the relationship affect how we talk to each other which then can cause fights, which then can cause acrimony, which if you're not careful, if you don't check in on it, can lead people to break up or worse, right? And it seems to me like that is what's happening here. And I know, again, I understand the frivolous nature of this comparison, but emotionally, mentally, it seems to be the same, which is you have conditions in the prison, right, in which there aren't any or very little 
mental health professionals within these prisons, right? And yet you have a ton of prisoners who are suffering for one reason or the other, either due to psychological trauma inherited as a child or what have you, and they're suffering from mental illness. And then the people who are tasked to deal with them are not trained to do it. So they become resentful or stressed that they have to do something that they're not trained to do. And that anger and stress then pours over into how they treat the person that they're assigned to treat. And then that anger infects the prisoner, and the prisoner is then angry back at the staff. And this acrimony just spreads like a disease throughout the prison, right? Because everyone is underfunded. Everyone is overstressed. Everyone is resentful towards everyone else. And it exacerbates the problem of funding. It exacerbates the problem of not enough staff because people are being tasked with jobs they never expected they'd have to fulfill. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, I made this point earlier about studies showing that when really harsh prisons open up in a town, they see rising domestic violence calls. And that's another consequence of this, of people do not deal well being in these super high stress environments all the time. And you know the, the staff are there for 40 hours, which is tough enough. Obviously, the people who are incarcerated there are there for 24-7. There's quite a good book by a guy named Shane Bauer, who for a piece for Mother Jones, which then he turned into a book called American Prison, he went undercover as a journalist into a private prison for four months. And he talked about it, it was a rough place. It was a private prison in Louisiana. It was not as rough as some of the prisons I've spent a lot of time in. Nonetheless, he he said that it really affected the way that he treated his partner, the way that he treated other people. Certainly, he went into the prison under the notion. I mean, he's he's this guy who, you know, has very favorable politics towards people who are incarcerated. That's he had actually been incarcerated in Iran, which is what sparked his interest in incarceration in the United States. And he was held in solitary confinement in Iran, which sparked his interest in solitary confinement in the United States. But he found that, you know, the version of himself he wanted to be, which is, you know, sort of this kind, empathetic person, it wouldn't work, both because it didn't fit the broader culture and wasn't tolerated, but also because he didn't have it in him to buck all those stressors and be the person that he wanted to be. And he was there for four months. And I think he talked about that was about as much as he could do. And so I think you're absolutely right. And that there are all these negative feedback loops going on where how incarcerated people treat one another, how the staff and incarcerated people treat one another, and how incarcerated people are going to function in a society when they come home after living for long periods in this environment. Yeah, that kind of cascading effect where the prison guards themselves, the people who work in these prisons, take that stress outside of the home and abuse people who have never been sentenced and who don't live in that prison, their husbands, their wives, their children. I think it's really good for us to understand this problem is something that doesn't just stay inside the prison or inside the jail itself. It kind of spreads throughout the town or the city where these facilities are located. And I think that people don't think enough about those kind of cascading effects that can happen when you're working in a stressful environment like that and an environment in which you feel like you're being undervalued, right, as an employee who then has to then take that stress home with them. So that's, I think, a really important point. I want to just touch on a couple other things before we wrap up here, but I want to talk about people with disabilities who are imprisoned. And before we get to what happens to these folks inside of the system, I'd like to just kind of clarify a rather surprising statistic I discovered on your organization's site. 
it says that most people in our prisons and jails have at least one disability. And I think you mentioned that that might be related to age, but how would disability be defined in this instance? And why is the rate of disability so much higher among the incarcerated than the general population? Yeah, so it's somewhat higher among the incarcerated population, but partly it's a function of disability being very broadly defined as a legal concept. So in the Americans with Disabilities Act, the term disability is defined quite broadly. And so people with mental health issues, people with mobility issues, people with vision or oral issues, once you add it up, it's significantly more than half of the prison population. Now, not everybody who is in the free world who has one of those issues necessarily thinks of themselves as the sort of person who has a disability. But in part, that fact is a little interesting once you start talking about the prison environment, because one thing that we're able to do is whatever physical or mental limitations we have, we have some control over our environment to take care of ourselves, whereas people in prison have entirely had that stripped away from them. And so they're at the whims of their jailers. And so in that sense, it's actually very important that disability is defined broadly because many people are going to need some individualized accommodations that, again, might be somewhat invisible to people in the free world who just are able to manipulate their environments, that their limitations don't hold them back so much. But people in prison, that's not the case. I mean, to give a simple example here, imagine somebody, we've represented people in very similar circumstances. So this isn't really a hypothetical. With knees that they can walk pretty much fine, but they can't really climb. This doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, it's just really painful and sometimes their knees lock up. So this person probably wouldn't think of themselves as disabled. They wouldn't go get a handicap sticker from the DMV, but they also wouldn't rent an apartment where they had to walk up a flight of stairs and they wouldn't sleep on the top of a bunk bed. However, people in prison with exactly those knee issues are often forced to climb up a flight of stairs and come down every time they want to use the bathroom or every time they want to eat and have to climb to the top of a bunk bed to get to their bed. And those knee problems, which don't have to be life-altering if you have some control over your environment, if the prison refuses to accommodate it, it can become very serious if, if you're talking about falling and hurting yourself and things like that. Got it. So as disability, I guess, is defined in this context, it's a person who would require a regular accommodation from the state in this instance, right? Yeah, who, has, uh, who is substantially limited in a major life activity is the legal definition. But think of both of those terms as pretty broad. As examples, what are some cases that Rights Behind Bars is either currently assisting with or has assisted with in the past that can kind of give examples for the listener as to what ways people with disabilities are either undertreated or even mistreated or abused in the system? Yeah, so it's basically virtually every circumstance you can think of. And I think what it's really downstream of is this culture of uniformity that we're going to have one set of rules for everybody, which doesn't work for people with disabilities. You need to make special accommodations for people with disabilities. They're often very trivial. But a lot of the people we've worked with are people with serious mental health problems. That was their disability, including, you know, we represent the estate of a young man who committed suicide after he was repeatedly put in solitary confinement with a hanging implement and a tie-off point. Why was he 
put into solitary confinement with those things? Well, he was repeatedly sentenced to a particularly punitive form of solitary confinement where he had one hour out of cell every 48 hours. So the legal definition of solitary confinement from the UN is two hours a day or less. So this guy had a quarter of that. And he would just just trivial things. He would, you know, give himself tattoos. He would argue with guards. You know, the simple things that get people in trouble. But despite the fact that he was mentally disabled, he had a lot of mental health issues, he had a history of suicidality. Nonetheless, he was put in a cell with a tie-off point. It's not a hard thing to not put suicidal people in a cell with a tie-off point where you can hang yourself. But it requires a level of individualization that a lot of prisons reject. So some mental health issues, a lot of physical disabilities, actually. We've represented people who lived on the first floor of a prison unit, and all the programming was on the second floor, and, you know, just tough luck. And whether this is irony or not, I don't know, we represent somebody who lived on the second floor, and all the programming was on the first floor, and he couldn't get down a flight of stairs. Just so that I'm clear on this, you're saying that the average prison does not have accommodations for people who have trouble walking or who are confined to a wheelchair? They often do not, although, again, it really varies. So I, I wouldn't say most because not because it's not too many, not because it's too, <laughs> too many. I, yeah. I, I'm again, speaking generally about the prison systems are, is so hard that I'm, I'm not going to say most, even though it may be true, but it's just impossible to know. But yeah, even things like ADA compliant showers. So these are many showers have, you know, a two and a half foot step to get into them. A lot of people are just physically incapable of doing that. We have represented somebody who was unable to hear, who was legally deaf, and who was attacked by a staff member for not following an order that he could not hear. So really, really a broad range of things. I mean, one piece of insight you get into doing these cases is, again, because these prisons are total environments. So first of all, you and I operating in the free world have a lot of ability to manage our situations. But then also, you know, sometimes we have disputes with our employer or with our landlord or with the grocery store or with the restaurant or with our doctor. And all of these disputes for an incarcerated person are with the prison. They're one entity that they have one relationship with. And so when just the varied needs that, again, especially as the population gets older, and especially as more and more people are going to prison with serious mental health problems, people do have varied needs, but this culture of uniformity isn't ready to meet. And even for average people, but for people with disabilities. Now, you know, a piece of hope here is that there are actually really strong protections legally for people with disabilities in the Americans with Disabilities Act. And it requires the state and municipalities to make individualized accommodations to people with disabilities. And that term is defined broadly. But it's just a matter of learning that these things are happening and trying to remedy them. And it's, it's a matter of the entities actually complying with the law. Because this is one of the rare cases with prison issues where the law is actually good. And it's just a matter of making them follow it. This kind of all leads us to the reason why Rights Behind Bars exists, which is, and I'm just going to, again, quote from the site, in nearly every single one of the 7,000 prison civil cases filed in federal courts every year, and that's just federal, not state, incarcerated plaintiffs are representing themselves, or otherwise known as pro se, from a prison cell. 
the roughly 5% of plaintiffs who do have attorneys are often represented by resource-constrained solo practitioners who are not experts in prison condition litigation or in specialized areas of relevant law. On the other side, the prisons and jails not only have lawyers, but are repeat players because of the volume of litigation they face. Unlike the people in prison, the prisons themselves develop subject matter expertise, and their lawyers can be strategic in thinking about long-term consequences of litigation decisions, end quote. So here's my first question. Why don't prisoners have public advocates representing them? We have government-funded public defense lawyers for those who can't afford private representation. Why isn't this extended to the incarcerated who want to challenge unjust living conditions in prison or jail? Right. So this is what people in the legal field term a civil Gideon, because Gideon versus Wainwright is the famous case that held that in most circumstances, criminal defendants have the right to a lawyer. But there's no civil equivalent, which is why even in incredibly important life or death decisions, like, for example, whether or not you're entitled to asylum or whether alternatively you're going to be deported to a country where you may be killed because of various traits that you have. There's no guarantee for a lawyer for that. And the same is true for incarcerated people who have had their civil rights violated. The specific problem that Bryce Behind Bars was created to help remedy is exactly as you put it, that there's this huge systematic imbalance in advocacy. So in a lot of fields, like something like voting rights law, you have a really sophisticated and well-resourced effort on the plaintiff side suing the government. And then the governments get sued a lot, and they get good at defending the cases. And they both say the state of Texas and the ACLU Voting Rights Project, they are both thinking long term about the development of law and how to not just win the battle, but to win the war. And all this stuff goes back to on the plaintiff side, this all goes back to the civil rights movement and how successful it was in picking the right stories to tell, picking the right cases to bring. And that legal movements try to do the same thing. They try to find the right stories to tell. They find the right plaintiffs. They bring the right cases in the right jurisdictions at the right times. And as someone who cared a lot about prison law, what we were really struck by was how you get all that on the defense side. You know, the prisons, they get sued all the time. And and again, what that's a function of is in the free world, you might occasionally not as an individual, but as an aggregate, you know, there are lawsuits against doctors, there are lawsuits against landlords, there are lawsuits, you know, when you slip and fall against the person who is supposed to keep the sidewalk clear. The prison is all of those things to incarcerated people. It's a total institution. So you have this high volume of suits, and they can think long term and they can think strategically. But on the plaintiff side, not only do you not have that level of coordination, but you have people who are often incarcerated, people who often have mental health issues or have not necessarily had a lot of formal education and don't have access to things like the internet even. And so, you know, it's hard enough winning these cases with a lawyer without one. It's virtually impossible. And this systematic imbalance in advocacy results in precedents that are like the one that happened to Trent Taylor, where he was held in those conditions for six days and the court said, fine. He actually did a really nice job representing himself up through the Fifth Circuit, and then we t- took it over to the Supreme Court along with our co-counsel. But 
you get these cases that should really win and that should be setting good precedent, but the courts don't necessarily take the cases super seriously when the person is representing themselves and is incarcerated. And so one thing we try to do is we try to find cases where the courts got it wrong on behalf of pro se incarcerated people, and we try to step in and appeal it up to the Court of Appeals or on very rare occasions to the United States Supreme Court and ask them to intervene and fix it. Was Taylor using the jailhouse lawyer's handbook when he was representing himself? You know, I think he probably was. That's a widely distributed resource and and a wonderful one. So I think it's possible, but he and I have never actually had a conversation about it. He is a really, you know, he's not somebody who's had a lot of formal education, but he's a really sharp guy and he did a really nice job representing himself in it. It really should have been enough, you know, between the horrible conditions he faced and the intelligence that he has and that he brought to bear on this case. It really should have been enough. It wasn't until we got involved, unfortunately, but that's that's not a testament to his grit or his intelligence, which are voluminous on both counts. I think what can be so frustrating about just everything in this conversation is that in America, I think one of the things that we hold sacrosanct is the rights and sovereignty of the individual, right? And I understand that when we're incarcerated, if we ever have to be, that we lose certain rights as part of that incarceration. But there's something so fundamentally American about respecting the individual dignity of a human being. And it gets talked a lot about in the news. You know, the the Bill of Rights amendments, our abilities as individuals to live our own lives free of cruelty and free of abuse from other people. And it just seems like it's that black box problem again, where once these individuals, and that's what they are, you know, like they're individual human beings. And even if they've done heinous things, they're individuals living under these conditions. And yet it seems like the justice system, which should be advocating for and respecting the rights of individuals, even ones that are incarcerated, too often takes the side of the people who are abusing individuals. From a fundamental philosophical perspective, it seems so like so many of these rulings are something you'd hear in a society that doesn't respect individuals as, as sovereign beings, right, who, who deserve dignity and respect, but rather treats them almost like a kind of amorphous mass, not individuals, but people that are just kind of there. And it just seems like in case after case, like the individual is getting lost and, and the individual dignity of human beings is just getting lost in these, like, what you were calling them puzzle boxes puzzle. What That just kind of is what strikes me about the underlying current of all of this, is that it just seems like so fundamentally un-American in terms of its philosophical underpinnings. Does that make sense? It does make sense, and I, I think it's absolutely right. And I have some hope that it will change. I think when it comes to the law, you know, the federal judiciary is much older than the general public at large. That's true of the federal appeals courts. It's also true about the Supreme Court. And I think a lot of people came of political age in a time where crime rates were rising and it wasn't clear when they were going to stop rising. And there was a huge backlash to this that I think has led to a lot of very unproductive things, these sorts of conditions included. But I do think people coming of age now have come of age in a very different environment. And I think one that has not allowed that sort of fear or those sorts of biases to overcome 
those underlying principles that you talked about. So I'm optimistic that things will get better on this score. You know, I, I, I certainly hope so. I think, you know, transparency is a key to a lot of this just because I think people across the political spectrum, when they hear the stories of a lot of what's going on, I think people are upset. They don't support it. However, it's very hard for people to know what's going on inside these prisons. Because, you know, a, a famous quote from Angela Davis is prisons don't disappear social problems, they disappear human beings, which we put at the top of our site because it is this idea of, you know, take people who are causing problems because they're doing socially negative behavior, they're addicted to drugs, they're seriously mentally ill, and, you know, put them in this box and it'll be invisible to the rest of us. But those problems don't actually go away. And I'm optimistic that a new generation is coming along that will see it in that way. Hopefully so. And before we get to the last question, which I ask every guest, in addition to Rights Behind Bars, which listeners can find at rightsbehindbars.org, link will be in the show notes and you can donate to that organization. Sam, are there any other organizations that are doing work in this space in addition to your own that you would recommend that listeners check out? and perhaps support if they're interested in getting more involved. You've already mentioned that book, which we'll put in the show notes as well, but are there any organizations that you would recommend people to learn more about? Sure. So there's a lot of people doing great work. The ACLU has a chapter called the National Prison Project that focuses just on prison conditions issues that does great work. There's an office in California called the Prison Law Office that does wonderful work. And we talked about how so many people in jail are just there because of poverty, because of their failure to make a payment. And there's an organization here in DC called Civil Rights Corps that is doing work around the country, working with local community groups, using litigation and other advocacy tools to try and eliminate the use of cash bail, which I think would make America a freer, safer, and more just place. Well said. The last question that I ask everyone who comes on the show, which I'm now about to ask you, is we are limited as individuals in all sorts of ways. We're limited in our time, in our energy, and often in our capacity for empathy. And even the most well-intentioned and caring person, and Sam, you strike me as one of those kinds of people, can't be thinking of every other person, every other group of people all the time. It's just impossible. So is there someone or a group of people in your life or in the world at large right now, concrete or abstract, that you would like to take a moment and offer empathy to? That's a good question. I do have, I think, a predisposition towards empathy. That sounds self-aggrandizing, but I, I don't mean it to. I, I think sometimes it's negative. I see the other side of things that are really one-sided. I sympathize with people who maybe would benefit more from a harsher reaction for me instead of sympathy. But that has driven me into this work is the idea that it's not hard for me to work on behalf of people who have made really serious mistakes, but are being treated inhumanely. I don't have to overcome any cognitive dissonance. I, I think that's just the way that I'm wired. But one thing that I would say, I guess, and this, this has come up several times, it's very easy, I think, to take an us against them attitude when you spend a lot of time in prisons and you see how badly people are abused in the same sort of us against them ethnocentric sort of attitude that people take against our clients it's easy to take that on behalf of our clients so i i would just say that i think that 
getting as many people safely out of prison as possible and the small number of those that have to remain or that do remain being treated as humanely as possible, I think really would be beneficial to the staff of the people who worked there. Even in the same way that some of our clients have made terrible mistakes, some of the staff who have done terrible things to people I care about, my clients, I do think it's a brutal job and one that causes people tremendous stress and suffering. And and obviously, some people are able to do it with incredible grace and humanity, but it's just sort of swimming against the tide to be able to do that. So, I would say, because everything in my job pushes me to go the opposite way, I will say that I offer my empathy to the people who have made mistakes in treating people in prison as inhuman, because I think ultimately it's an action that degrades oneself as much as it does the other person. And it's a consequence of a system that's really set up to work against people and to be in nobody's best interest. So I'll offer them my empathy. Thank you, Sam. From my research on this topic, it just really seems like a system that takes people, whether they're sent there via incarceration or they work there, right, as a guard or staff, that it takes people and it leaves them worse than when they went in. It makes them worse people in certain ways. It makes them less caring, less forgiving, more cruel, even really well-intentioned people put into the system. It just seems like only the very rare ones come out not just completely ground to pieces by the very structures that the system kind of places on people. So I'm really grateful for the work that you're doing. I'm grateful that there are people like you out there, whether they're one in 10 or one in 100, who are standing up for people who I think a lot of society either forgets about or outright hates, right? For whatever reasons, they may be misinformed. So I'm grateful that we have people like you out there who are trying to stem the tide and fighting against injustice because I think it's really important. So thank you for the work that you do and, and thank you so much for your time today. That's very kind of you to say and thank you for having me on. <laughs>